Hi, and welcome to the Congo Research Group podcast. My name is Jason Stearns. I'm the director of the Congo Research Group. Every week, we bring you a podcast with interviews of leading thinkers and experts on the Democratic Republic of Congo, trying to bring a little bit of clarity and light on an extremely complicated situation. This week, we have with us two leading experts on the political economy of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Pete Jones of Global Witness and Tom Wilson of Bloomberg News. And we will be exploring some issues related to governance and transparency. Enjoy. So I'm now joined here by uh, two colleagues uh, and friends, Pete Jones from Global Witness and Tom Wilson uh, from, from Bloomberg. We've all published reports that in some way or the other focus on either conflicts of interest in the Congo with regards to the presidential family or corruption in the Congo with regards to the loss of a massive amount of money from state coffers. That's the, the Global Witness report. Um, all of this tells us something about the state of governance in the Congo and potentially tells us something about the state of current politics in the Congo. But that's kind of what I wanted to discuss with, with both of you. Um, so, Pete, why don't we start with you? I mean, the the Governess report, was, which made big, big headlines, says, if I understand correctly, that $750 million, potentially much more money, may have gone lost from Congolese state coffers because of misdealings in the mining sector. Can you, can you sort of hit the, the big notes in the report? Yeah. So, um, obviously, the top line figure that we've used is about $750 million, and that's money that we're kind of terming public money because it's money that's come from uh, taxation, royalties, signature bonuses, sales of mining assets, all from the private mining companies. So that's money that comes from the mining sector. And so therefore, it's basically predicated on the natural resource wealth of Congo. And therefore, in our view, uh, the Congolese people have a kind of stake in that in that money. Um, so this money has flowed into, this $750 million flowed into three of the national tax agencies and the state mining company, Jekamine. Uh, which we'll come back to in a bit. And then that money basically disappears. And so we don't know what happens to it, how those institutions have used that money. So you're saying that big mining companies, and mostly international mining companies, have paid this money to Congress state agencies. That much we know. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, we just lost track of the money? or Yeah, the, the, so the mining companies are uh, obviously put in a very difficult position. They're abiding by their contracts and abiding by Congolese law and paying their taxes and paying whatever... Um, they're contractually obliged to pay. Now, the problem is the opacity of these agencies. So one of the little wrinkles that we have with this report, which is quite interesting, is that the tax agencies are permitted by law to keep hold of this money. And Jekamine, uh, the state mining company, was commercialized or privatized in 2010. So it's allowed to make its own revenues, but with the goal in mind that its sole reason for existence is to make money for the Congolese government. And what we found is that this money, about two thirds of that 750 million has gone into Jekamine and nothing has come out of the other side. Um, and we know that this money flows into these tax agencies and it's very unclear what happens to it after mm -hmm. that. So rather than it being directly looted from the public treasury, the way we've kind of tried to encapsulate it is saying this is this is public money. Like I said, the Congolese people have a stake in that money. And yet the system in Congo means that none of that is actually arriving in the public treasury or being used for spending on public services. So this is essentially a loss to uh, to the public purse in a sense. How do we, I mean, that's so... How do we just play devil's advocate here? And the Congress government has answered you as well. But how do we know? It could just be that they're just bad at accounting. And so the money came into the tax agency, into Jekamine, and actually it did go into public works, into paying salaries. It's just that the accounting was shoddy and 
And so there's no trace of it, perhaps, in public records. Maybe the websites don't show this, but it actually did get to state coffers. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, there's two there's two issues, really. So the first step was to analyze the revenue data, which we did, which allowed us to come to this 750 million figure, just to say that's over three years, from 2013 to 2015, based on the figures in the EITR reports, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. So that shows you the payments that are being made by mining companies and then what the government is declaring having received, and there's a kind of calibration to make sure everything lines up. So that was really useful in helping understand the revenue flows. And then the second question, as you say, is once we know that this sum of money has gone into these agencies and we don't really see whether it's coming out the other side, we try to understand what does happen to it once it goes inside. Um, so the first issue is generally the opacity. So we've written to all of these guys, all these agencies and the state mining company to ask them a very lengthy set of questions about what they do with the money, what evidence there is. And um, we haven't had any response. And it's obviously an issue that... Um, these agencies aren't public, aren't publishing kind of publicly available financial information that shows what they do. Considering the state agencies, that is uh, a very important point. Secondly, we were able to gather kind of old journalistic style testimony from people that work in the tax agencies, people who work in the mining sector, diplomats in Kinshasa, people in Katanga, about the way uh, that this has worked with the tax agencies in particular. Um, and so, what the Mines Ministry has said is that well, these these revenues they're allowed to keep back are for their own functioning, they're an incentivization. And these revenues they're allowed to keep are actually a percentage of fines that they levy against mining companies for infractions of tax law or whatever. But what we found with our inquiry is that actually all this has served to do is incentivize a kind of predatory behavior by many of the tax agents and the tax agencies. Um, they've been, in some cases, fabricating penalties or changing tax codes to catch companies out and imposing uh, extremely high penalties because these are the things they're allowed to keep hold of. They're allowed to keep hold of a percentage of it. So what we've proposed is really it makes a lot more sense and it's a lot more transparent if all the money flows to the central budget and then the tax agencies are funded from the central budget. And indeed, they do get significant funding from that central budget. The second half of the investigation found that many of the people at the heads of the tax agencies are often put in place or have political connections. So they're put in place by the presidency, the prime minister, they're politically connected. And the testimonial evidence we got was that a percentage of this withheld money gets passed up the chain, basically. Mm. So there are those questions to be answered in a real lack of a lack of clarity. Now with Jacquemin, uh, Jacquemin is a whole different kind of ball game. Uh, it's been kind of notoriously associated with very uh, questionable deals over the years with um, sales of its assets under market value to offshore companies that have been able to flip those assets. And it turned out that the owner of those companies is a friend of the president, which has been well covered elsewhere. Um, we tried Dan, to... Dan Gertler. That's Dan Gertler, yeah, exactly. Um, so what we did, first of all, we, we said, well, why would Jacquemin theoretically potentially hold on to all that cash. So maybe it is paying off its debts, maybe it is investing in its mining operations, maybe it's got, you know, um, overheads that it has to pay. So we got hold of the 2014 uh, financial accounts for Jacquemin, which were leaked because they're not publicly available. Um, and we looked at their investment in mining and the output that they've uh, got in terms of mineral production over the years. And so over the last sort of five to six years in general, the, min the mineral production trend is very much downward. Um, the wages of their workers have gone unpaid for months on end, so we're not sure what's going on there. If you look at the accounts, you can see those debts rising year on year. Uh, we found um, within the accounts that they were actually using the money to, pre to prioritize paying back debts to Dan Gertler, the friend of the president, rather than using that money for other spending priorities. So the kinds of excuses that we're looking at about Jacqueline saying, well, we have to hold on to this cash to invest in our own productive capacity, don't seem to stand up. Mm -hmm. So it leaves those important questions. Second element, we uh, obtained documentation which showed that Jacquemin is involved in extremely suspect transactions. So 
we found, and this is a story that was covered uh, briefly in the New York Times as well last year, but <clears throat> we looked a bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, in detail at some uh, advanced tax payments uh, that Jacqueline, uh seems to have made over the space of about seven months, which totaled $95 million. So we're immediately suspicious because that far outstrips the annual tax payments by Jacqueline, and they're paying them in advance, which is unusual. And then we find that $8 million of that was uh, withdrawn in cash from Jacqueline's account at BGFI Bank, which is a bank that's been at the heart of several scandals recently. It's run by Kabila's adopted brother. And everybody we spoke to said that extracting $8 million in cash for tax payments is unheard of. This is as what described, as us, described to us as, um, as an embezzlement operation. And then finally, we were looking at Jacqueline's management of its own revenue streams. So like I said, taxes, royalties, these kind of things are, are based on Congo's mineral wealth and are therefore what we call public money. Um, and we found in one transaction, Jacqueline have, had secretly signed away its royalty stream from one of the biggest mines in Congo to that man again, Dan Gertler. So since 2013, royalties that were meant to be paid to Jacqueline have actually been going to Dan Gertler's company in the Cayman Islands. And we don't know why. We don't know what Jacqueline received in return. Um, and in fact, that transaction is now being investigated by the authorities in Canada, where uh, the KCC owner is listed. Hmm. So you, there's a, it's really a report that covers a lot of different things. The headline of $750, $750 million going missing is just part of a broader sort of array of findings that you, that you found in terms of what's <coughs> going on in the mining sector. And so $750 million may be missing, or at least it disappears into Jacamina tax agencies. We don't know what happens to the other side. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly accounts from people you spoke to close to this matter suggest that this may be then being used for payments to individuals. Some of the money being given to Jekamine is being prioritized to give to this friend of the president's, Dan Gertler. And all of this in a context of the Congolese economy that is really in the pits at the moment. I think we've had probably inflation of uh, probably, I think the Congolese franc is certainly worth 70% less or so to the dollar than it was several years ago, or even just a year ago, I think. Um, and, um, and an electoral process that is stalled in part, according to the authorities, because they don't have any money. Right. Right. So what is the, I mean, in terms of the broader political economy, what does this tell you about what the priorities are for, can you, can you speculate or at least make deductions about what the priorities are for the leadership in the country with regards to the mining sector? What do they use? What, how do they see the mining sector? Well, the mining sector has to be the most important sector for the Congolese economy, and it's kind of shocking, and what kind of inspired us to look into this issue is that the economy is lurching from crisis to crisis, partly fueled by commodities price collapse over the last couple of years. But recently, we've seen a huge boom in the price of cobalt. Um, Congo is the world's leading supplier of cobalt. And, you know, the copper price, where Congo is now Africa's leading uh, supplier of copper, uh, is back is rising again. So you'd think, you know, this should spell some. This should mean something positive for Congo's economy, and yet, like we see, <clears> the, the, the situation continues to worsen. Um, so it's it's a vitally important situation. So it does beg the question: where are the priorities, and why are these? Uh, why is the system essentially, as we look at it, the system is broken? Right. Um, all of those um, cases that I was just outlining in terms of. Uh, signs that the money is being mismanaged by the people that are entrusted with the management of Congo's natural resource and mining wealth, particularly Jacqueline. If you look at the head of Jacqueline, the CEO is a guy called Albert Yuma that we talk about a lot in our report. Um, and you mentioned at the start conflicts of interest. So we've seen a series of 
conflicts of interest, I guess, involving Alba Yuma in the sense that he is the head of the audit committee at the central bank. Mm. Um, he's also the chair of the biggest of the private business federation in Congo. Um, we've seen uh, in some reporting in, in um, other newspapers like Le Monde and in Le Soir that there have been very questionable transactions where companies that are presided over by Alba Yuma are receiving huge loans, a $43 million loan from the central bank which is relatively inexplicable within a month of it being incorporated, I think. And then you look at that and you think, well, Alba Yuma is the head of the audit committee of the central bank. How can that be allowed to happen? You see Jacqueline's getting involved in these very questionable transactions where it's ostensibly paying advanced taxes to the central bank, but that money's being withdrawn in cash. And Alba Yuma is the head of Jacqueline and the audit committee chair of the central bank. So these are, um, these really are problems. So I think, I mean, these are huge, these are certainly issues that, um, it's not for us to, judge on, but it's mm. something that we want to inspire a public debate around in Congo, and it's something that Congo's parliament could pick up and, and inquire and look into in more detail. Taking a step back, um, sometimes, you know, and this isn't speaking specifically about Congo, though perhaps it could be applicable, people can decide if it is, but there seems to be almost like a kind of um, chaos by design. Um, so there's so that in terms of the tax system, we found the tax system is so fragmented, there's so many different agencies and so many different taxes and so many different codes that it allows um, a kind of, the, the confusion allows the money to be siphoned away sometimes. And the confusion that is prompted by Jacqueline's internal structures and the fact that there's complete opacity around what it, what it does with its money is something that allows perhaps money to be siphoned away. Um, so I think there is that. The other issue, which is again a broader issue, and here at Global Witness we look at several countries uh, around the world which have governance and corruption problems, and one common theme is the role of state-owned uh, resource companies, often oil companies in West Africa, but in Congo we have Jekamin, the state-owned mining company. And the danger there is when the head of that company is appointed by the president, then it's easily captured for something that is meant to be managing public wealth is easily captured by a private political interest. So that might be something we see mm. as well. Trying to pick up on, on Pete's point regarding public debate, or rather the lack of public debate, I certainly feel like that is an area where the situation in Congo has got worse in the last two to three years. The mining sector has always been the engine of economic growth and has always been a key revenue generator for the political elite. And there were, there were huge problems with corruption, with the efficiency and the management of those revenues. Um, and if we take the Jekamins example, there have been countless examples over the past decade where Jekamins has been involved in opaque transactions. But I do feel that, take the clock back five, ten years ago, that if an illicit transaction was uncovered, no one would have necessarily been actually held to account, but there might have at least been a level of public discussion of that issue in Congo and certainly within the National Assembly. And I feel that in the past 18 months, as the regime and specifically the regime's elite has simply focused on self-preservation, that that type of discussion has dissipated and now completely evaporated. Why, so, why is that, do you think? No, I think that the regime, so specifically the presidency, is focused on self-preservation, um, but I think that actually trickles down to almost every me every member of Congo's political establishment. When I look at Congo's political system, I see no party loyalty or individual loyalty between individual members of the political establishment. Everybody is thinking, right? How do I how do I survive for another for another six months or another twelve months? And then, so I think there's a kind of everyone has turned inward, focusing, looking at themselves with their own personal priorities. Uh, and there has been a, a death of discussion, certainly within the National Assembly, where you haven't really seen a kind of constructive debate on these types of issues for a very long time. Seems like this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. You can point to examples previously where 
the former Prime Minister Matata Ponya has called out the chairman of Jacobin's Albert Yuma in public discussions at uh, at the National Assembly. Yuma is on the flip side turned around and criticised um, Matata and well. While those types of kind of public battles didn't actually lead to anyone's resignation um, or anyone being held to account, these contributed to a public discussion. Mm. Similarly, when the IMF was uh, had its debt program in place with with Congolese government, there was a requirement from the Congolese government to provide greater transparency around some of these types of mining transactions and the management of these revenues. When that relationship ended, as a result of the government's refusal to disclose the identity in a particular transaction then really the level of external scrutiny of these types of deals has has fallen from what already was a low was a low level. It's completely disappeared. So how's the, you know, we've all published in our reports in the past month or so about what's been going on in these various issues, sometimes issues that are very hard, close to the heart of the government, mm. the, the presidency. What's How do you find, Tom, the reaction has been? So you've done a lot of reporting on, on Zoe Kabila. You also were part of the Bloomberg team that wrote about um, the broader presidents, uh, uh, presidential families investments in an article that came out last year. How has that gone down in, in, in public in the DRC? Do you find that that has spawned a vigorous debate? Do you find it's been picked up by Congolese newspapers? Has it been picked up by the National Assembly? Yep. It's been a bit of mixed reaction. Um, I think, I think the, the, the three different pieces of work that I've been involved on in, were important, and that was the reason that the Bloomberg decided to pursue those investigations, was we felt that there was a general suspicion within Congo or general knowledge that the presidency had enriched itself and had benefited from um, 15 years in power and had accrued different assets, but no one could actually put their finger on and say specifically what, what, what they'd owned and, and what they owned both legally and illegally. So I feel the work that we did was vitally important in providing a list of assets that, that the presidential family has acquired. I think the kind of initial reaction to that list were from the Congolese population or those that were able to, to read and access the information was one of, of surprise and shock. Um, and so we felt that there was a big, quick, con constructive reaction from the Congolese population, um, at least initially. In terms of re a political reaction from the opposition or from the, na or from the National Assembly, I think that has actually been rather muted. I mean, there's mm. been no discussion of these assets within the National Assembly. Um, no one has really called for a investigation by the Procureur General or some other prosecuting authority within the government. Um, I think some members of the political elite have reacted to say, well, of course, of course the presidency controls these assets. I mean, it's a powerful family. That is the inevitability of Congolese politics or even more broadly <coughs> African politics. Um, and I think, um, I think that, I think that is a shame. Look, I mean, in the reporting that we did, in the majority of cases, we weren't accusing members of the president's family of illicit or illegal activities necessarily. We, we're not, a, we're not judge and jury. We were simply presenting the facts that we've been able to accumulate and demonstrating ownership of key assets. But within there, there were clear examples where there were conflicts of interest. And I think for, for Congo's political, um, environment to evolve healthily, it needs to get to a position of maturity where they can have public debates um, about these types of issues within institutions like the National Assembly, and they can and they can do those both willingly and without fear of recrimination, and that hasn't happened. Yeah, Pete, just, uh, yeah I was interested to hear what you think about your, your reporting as well, how it's gone down. Yeah, well, I was just going to jump in just quickly on a point that Tom's just made there about the fact that the, the presidential family owns these businesses, but that wasn't actually against the law, and that's kind of something that... Right. Um, 
is reflected in our report as well, even though I think that the work that, um, that you've got, you guys have been doing with all the President's Wealth and the work that Bloomberg's been doing, which has been absolutely phenomenal, charting these, this ownership structure is just two sides. And, and what we've been doing is just two sides of the same coin. So we're looking at the way that public money mm-hmm. is potentially embezzled and then how that public money is used to invest in the private sector and continue generating wealth. It's kind of like a state looting 101 kind of uh, situation. And what we found, like I said, was that all this money is being paid by these mining companies and taxes and royalties and so on, which should be going, you know, to be used on, on public goods, but it's disappearing into these agencies, but legally. And so we kind of find that it's this um, unusual situation with what we've called as kind of legalized corruption. Um, so you have a situation in which the mines ministry has responded to our report saying, yeah, but they're allowed to do this. What's wrong? What's, what's your problem? Like, this is all kind of defined under law. And we, we do deal with that in the report. And we say, well, it may be legal, but it may also be corrupt at the same time. And so that's a, a kind of nuance that is important to understand, I think, about Congo, where, where basically the, um, the odds are already stacked in favor of those people that are operating those agencies. Um, so it's a system, really, that is a system, but the system is broken. And it's exactly at that moment that you need a proactive National Assembly to say, okay, maybe this is legal under the current Congolese legislation, but maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe we should be changing the law to deal with issues like the bonus system within tax agencies, which, as you said, creates creates a tax system where the enforcers of the tax system are incentivized to penalize rather than to, rather than to encourage people to respect the code. Yeah, one of the things, one of the disappointing things for me has been that I've seen two reactions to our reporting. One has been from the presidency, the official reaction. That's basically this is fake news. This is this is Moise Katumbi. I mean, in other words, usually they don't use his name, but they say that people are paying for the president's family to be defamed, etc. And so sometimes they explicitly say it's Moise Katumbi. Sometimes they're more vague. And the broad reaction from the public and from other parts of the political elite is this is great information, but we knew this already. They're corrupt. Now we just know how corrupt they are. The money's being stolen. Now we just have more details about that. What we really need to do is we need to change the president, get him out of power. But I think actually one of the broader messages that's been missed, at least what I, from what I gather from all of our reporting, is that this is not just an issue about Joseph Kabila and his family. This is an issue of systemic structural failures in the Congolese political system. I mean, you could say many of the same things about members of the opposition, about Moïse Katumbi, about others. I mean, your reporting is not about the presidency. It's about Jekamine and how money is being siphoned off from Jekamine. And this is in a, in a situation where you pointed out before, this is the, this should not be, I mean, it often said, but let me just say it again. This should not be a poor country. This country has the largest world's reserves of cobalt, which is going to, a reserve that's undoubtedly going to go up many fold in coming years as the, as car batteries are produced and so on and so forth. So this is a, a, a country that has enormous wealth, and that wealth is likely just to go go up in, just in terms of world market prices in, in, in coming years. And yet you don't, the reaction has not been, oh, yes, and Parliament should now make do an investigation. The Jekyll mean Parliament should do an investigation, or the court should launch investigations into the presidential family. The uh, Lombard Mende, the government spokesperson, did send us, a, did say in, in, in public that, we, the Congo Research Group, should submit our findings to the Inspectorat General des Finances, you know, which is fantastic. Mm. But, you know, our report's public. It's not up to us to, we're not a mm. Congolese judicial body. If Inspectorat General des Finances, it's their duty as a state agency to take this upon themselves to do these investigations. So it seems that the broader point has been missed. And I'm worried a little bit, even in the very, very best case scenario where you have elections happen at some point in the next two or three years, Kabila steps down and somebody else arrives, even if it's a member of the current opposition, these more fundamental problems will not have been dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. But I mean, you can see that the loopholes are there, right? And the loopholes need to be closed. And if you change the cast of characters, that won't make any difference. If Jacqueline won't 
open up its books and publish <laughs> the contracts that it's signing, for example, then the next person who arrives there is going to find it just as easy to extract money from it. And the problem continues, essentially. Well, how is this? Sorry, go ahead. One other reaction that I had to my reporting has been, why didn't? What about the role of Western actors in this debate? To, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and then that is something that we can we can consider here. I mean, I I don't know. Okay, I, I certainly agree, and often I've responded to that and said, look, one of my articles specifically identified a Western actor and identified Ivanhoe Mines, which we which I reported had signed um, sub subcontracts with two businesses owned by uh, Zoe Kabila, majority owned by Zoe Kabila over the period of the last four years. Um, in both cases, Ivanhoe said that in their response to me, they said that they had no idea that Zoe owned those businesses um, and no information had been made available to them during that contracting process to demonstrate that ownership. Again, it's not the role of a news agency to um, to, go, to, to judge a case like this, but, but nonetheless, simply saying that, the that they didn't know is probably not good enough. I mean, every company has a requirement to know your customer, know who you're doing business with. Due diligence is a standard operating procedure for anybody operating anywhere in the world, and particularly somewhere like Congo, where we know mm -hmm. that politics and business often uh, often intersect. And if it was relatively straightforward for me as a as a kind of single journalist operating in Congo to prove ownership, it should have been possible for for, for that international company. Um, which broadens it out into a kind of a wider question is that if we know that potentially the Congolese legal system isn't operating in the best interest of the Congolese population, for foreign investors operating in Congo, is simply following that legal system sufficient? Does that cut it? Or is there an additional moral obligation to ensure or do more to make sure that revenues that they are spending, either on subcontractors or tax revenue that they're giving to the government, is used for the benefits of the population's um, that are living in and around their minds or that are using their using their telephones. I mean, a good example, another one involving the family is Vodacom uh, and Vodafone. So mm -hmm. Bloomberg reported over a year ago now, 18 months ago, that Janet Kabila owns a 4.8% stake in, in Vodacom uh, in Congo, which is owned by London-listed Vodafone. It's a small minority interest. Um, we went to Vodafone for comment. Vodafone declined to comment, and that was really the end of the story. Uh, I mean, and from my perspective, I never really understood how Vodafone could simply decline to comment and then it continues business as usual. Their claim is that this is legal. There's nothing yeah, illegal about exactly. having... Uh, a, Janet Kabila is a private individual. She owns a stake in the company, so mm. what? Exactly. That would be their position. But for me, I'd like them to articulate that position publicly, explain exactly what due diligence they undertook in 2001, what legal arguments they held internally um, to reach the consideration that this isn't actually a problem for us to have us as a minor, uh, have her as a minority shareholder, and potentially these are the checks and balances we put in place to ensure that she doesn't use her position as an elected member of the National Assembly to vote in favour of legislation that ultimately supports our business model going forward. Yeah, we also don't know how she obtained those shares in the first place. I mean, it is, I think, from talking to company representatives in the past, their position, I mean, Ivanhoe's position publicly is that we didn't know that Zoe was involved. Even if he had been involved, they could probably argue that, look, there's nothing illegal about this. He's a private individual. He can do, he can do business as a private individual. Um, the OECD guidelines do say that they should not be engaging or they should, there should be a high level of due diligence with politically exposed people. But again, it does, it's not, I, it's not clear to me whether there is international legislation or securities and exchange legislation in the respective countries they're listed in. 
to say they can't do business with the president's family yep. as long as long as there's no corrupt or conflict, direct conflict of interest related to that. Is, is that a failing of the international financial system? Should there be greater scrutiny on these kinds of relationships? I think there should be, and I think there is, actually. I think in the last decade, we've seen the scrutiny of these types of transactions increase. I mean, the, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the U.S. legislation yeah. on which a lot of this is based, talks about um, giving a benefit a benefit of any kind to a public official is illegal if the objective is to encourage that public official to influence the actions of the state in favour of the uh, of the company. Yeah. Um, but but demonstrating that the chain of events is is very hard. And let me ask you the other thing we should say, which was often a reaction to the to, to our to the Bloomberg's reporting, was that these types of conflicts of interest are are not unique to Congo or to Africa. A lot of people kind of cited Trump in their responses to me. Congolese nationals would say, I hope Bloomberg's doing the same thing about Donald Trump and right. his family's businesses. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I could respond that, yes, we are. <laughs> but I do think, I mean, it's a, maybe it's a slight side point, but the kind of ability of international partners like the United States to kind of weigh in on debates like this is being undermined by sure. things like the Trump administration, which makes it difficult for an American prosecuting authority to maintain some kind of moral high ground in issuing edicts about how presidential families should behave and how foreign investors in, in the private sector and the political elite should interact. And beyond the, sorry, just add, beyond, the, beyond the kind of moral obligation or moral um, threshold, I guess, there is for that kind of intervention, you're obviously restricted to the kind of jurisdiction that you can exert. So um, it's better in the US where basically any dollar transaction can feasibly come under the kind of DOJ and SEC remit. But we found here in, when we've been talking to authorities in the UK about London listed and London registered, London headquartered companies, there's a real kind of gap between uh, what the legislation says and what's practically possible just in terms of resourcing. Um, we've seen that obviously the UK government has been, under Theresa May, has been considering um, folding a serious fraud office into the National Crime Agency, which would take away its independence. There have been funding issues. So there, there's also real practical considerations there, and that means that there's a very, very high threshold of proof that's required for some of these corruption cases to be carried forward to prosecutions. And so that, and they also take an extremely long time. So there's a lot of business that's taking place in Congo, and there are lots of shades of grey of corruption and morality involved in a series of transactions, and it's just not realistic that a foreign agency is going to be able to prosecute all of them. So, so Congo does also need to get its legal system in in place to be able to prosecute those. Yeah, I mean, enforcement's a real problem, I think. And I mean, this is, so this is something else I wanted to ask you guys about. There was, I mean, there has been, Tom, as you pointed out, a shift, sort of a sea change in the last 10 years. International legislation has been passed. And in particular, in the case of the Congo, we've had, I think, some, the, the DOJ, the Department of Justice decision on Auxif, <coughs> for me, at least, was a sea change. It was the first time that we saw in public documents proof that, in this case, a very large, um, uh, the venture capital hedge funds, Oxif, American-based um, uh, funds, was providing corrupt payments to senior officials in the DRC, including somebody who is almost certainly President Kabila, I think it was around $11 million, through Dan Gertler, right? And so Dan Gertler is now very much has a target sign on his head. I, I think in multiple jurisdictions now you have um, prosecutors looking into Dan Gertler because he is, he may be dealing, doing business in the Congo. He's one of the wealthiest individuals in Israel, where, which is where he lives. But he has companies that are listed and are invested in doing business with companies all over the world. And so do you think now, given the fact about how radioactive Dan Gertler has become and how people, thanks to, I mean, largely thanks to the reporting of you two or your, you know, global witness in Bloomberg, we now know 
how this works in terms of Congolese state or individuals in Congolese state taking concessions, selling them at basement price to a Dan Gertler vehicle and him flipping on the international market for 10, 20, 30 times the value. We know how this works now. Is it going to be harder to do that in the future? Are we, is, are, are we still going to have ENRC and Glencore, some of the largest mining companies in the world, carrying out these kinds of transactions in the, in the Congo? Or is we entering a new phase where corruption is done in a different way? So, I mean, I can first start with that. But, um, so I think you're right. Oxif was, was huge. I, I mean, the people that we talk to in financial sector here in the UK and the US, everybody knows about Oxif. Um, Oxif, and- just to clarify, Oxif <laughs> is, is the case where the DOJ, Department of Justice, settled uh, with uh, Oxif, this big venture capital fund, mm-hmm. over corrupt dealings they had in multiple countries, including the DRC. That's right, yeah. So they had a deferred prosecution agreement, which led to a huge amount of evidence being released by the Department of Justice and the SEC, which involved anonymized uh, individuals and companies, but it's pretty easy to figure yeah, out who they were. So, like, you know, <laughs> DRC partner being an infamous Israeli businessman is pretty clear that that was Dan Gerda. So that was... First, it was huge. It was a huge justification for, for us and for Bloomberg and for Carter Center and many organizations that have been working on those transactions involving Dan Gertler for years. Um, it's, a, it's a massive vindication of that work, and we understood how that mechanism of corruption works. So I think that's um, incredibly useful. Uh, it could do with more. There's ENRC being investigated officially here in the UK, and we hope to see an actual prosecution of that within the next year or so, hopefully. Um what we found in terms is that corruption can often stay one step ahead of the prosecution and ahead of the legislation. So what we found with the most recent case that we reported on in November last year, March this year, was that instead of obtaining an asset, what Dan Gertler had obtained was a revenue stream. So Jacqueline wasn't selling a mining license or getting rid of a mining license and giving it to Dan Gertler. It was giving away its rights to receive royalties from a mining project. And there was nothing under the legislation that meant that it should have declared that. Um, it wasn't, it didn't really require it to, I mean, you can argue that it should have published the contract, but that happened and nobody really knew about it for years. We don't um, know we received in return for what the state received in return. So Dan Gertler's people say that they paid something in order to receive that revenue stream, but they won't say how much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is now being investigated as well, but that just means that everything that has been worked towards, so there, are, there are policies called uh, beneficial ownership transparency, mm-hmm. where people want the true owners of these shell companies to be revealed if they're involved in these major transactions so that we know who really is benefiting from these contracts that really wouldn't have been any anything adequate to deal with this case because those are only that beneficial ownership uh, transparency only really applies to when there are assets being traded it's just the rights to a revenue stream that's something completely different and yet this revenue stream could earn Dan Gertler hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds over the uh, dollars over the life of the mine so that is one way in which you know the the mechanism can change and we have to try to keep mm. up with it Tom, do you want to, do you think that we're, Dan Gertler's going to end up in, in, in jail or do you think this is the kind of thing that at least these kinds of, these kind, kinds of, well, corrupt dealings, uh, are going to continue? Unfortunately, I think they will continue. I think history tells us that human greed, ambition, um, will continue to evolve and, and probably, probably stay one step ahead or just continue to, to shift, to shift and change. But I think, you're right that the OGSIF prosecution was a really significant milestone. Um, I think the serious fraud office is investigating ENRC, but is also investigating a whole series of other companies um, around the world. And we've seen an increase in its own um, and a willingness to bring investigations. So just last week, it, it announced it was opening an investigation into Rio Tinto and their conduct in Guinea on another mining project in, involving involving iron ore. Um, I think one 
I think well, one potential one potential concern, however, that we, that we want that we want to avoid is that the reaction of international companies that are willing to operate in compliance with global best practice that they don't react to this type of threat of prosecution by simply withdrawing from the Congo or pulling out and saying. Congo is too difficult for us to operate in with the potential threat of an international prosecution hanging over us because can we always manage all of the corruption risk at any given time? If we're dealing with 200 contractors, are our due, due, due diligence and KYC processes sufficient to ensure that there were no politically exposed individual in that supply chain? And therefore, they just think, to be honest, it's too difficult to mine for copper in Congo. Um, let's stick to Canada or Australia where we know the operating environment because if you do that, then you just leave Congo to probably less scrupulous operators and the types of self-serving, um, corrupt relationships and circles will, will just continue. So I think prosecuting authorities need to strike a balance whereby companies know that they have to operate in, in, a, uh, in compliance with international legislation and in the best interests of the governments and uh, states in which they're operating. But equally, that they're not disincentivized. Um, so things like whistleblowing, um, I think, are important. The ability for companies mm. who recognize internally something has gone wrong within their compliance systems that can blow a whistle on that self-report to prosecuting agencies and then you know, avoid criminal prosecution if they can demonstrate what they're doing to um, to deal to deal with the issue that they've uncovered. I think things like that are important. What you wouldn't want to see is. Um, every credible international investor pull out of Congo because they say actually it's just too difficult and mm -hmm. the risk of, a, of international prosecution is too great. To end with, um, I feel like we need to address the current political impasse in the Congo because all of this is really feeding, is plays a role, I'm sure, in that. But what can, well, first to set the stage, Kabila was supposed to step down in December of last year. The elections are now being delayed. Uh, at least the, electoral, the head of the Electoral Commission has indicated that they would not be able to take place this year, maybe next year, maybe even the year after that. Uh, the, we're heading into a deep, we're already in the middle of a deep political impasse in the Congo. The president is really dead-ended in terms of his own political future. He has been seemed unable to change the Constitution to, um, to have another mandate himself. He seems unable to find a successor to be able to succeed him or that he could trust to protect his, his, his assets. Um, uh, and so they ended up, end up playing for time, really. What do, I mean, all of this is, what do these massive losses of, of wealth, uh, the report, the global witness issue, what do these, uh, in massive investments by members of the political elite in the DRC that Bloomberg and we ourselves have been working on, what do you think this tells about the president's mindset, the family's mindset, where the country's headed? Yeah, I think um, I think the challenge with analyzing Kabir or trying to understand what he's thinking in terms of his own political future is that he speaks so rarely in public. He gives no interviews. He grants very few people direct access to him that you can only really speculate. But but that being said. I see no, I see nothing in his actions or inactions from the past two years to suggest that he wants to hold an election and leave power. Um, I think his family's assets are part of that. They're not the full story, um, but they're certainly part of that. And importantly, they demonstrate the extent to which the Kabila family is entangled um, in the Congolese economy. For all the reporting that we did, 
we only found a handful of assets outside of the Congo. So for the Kabilas, both for the, for the president himself and for the rest of his family, whatever the political future has in store for them, I think they, they, they need, they need to remain in the Congo. Um, and so f- for me, I, I see, I see him and I, and I see the family holding on. Um, and I see, unfortunately, see very few avenues or options for either the opposition or the international community in, in wanting to affect change. People's kind of different, different levers available to try and put pressure on the regime to, to hold those, to hold that vote, um, and to force change, um, are relatively few. And, yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm, I'm not optimistic about a, a, a sudden political shift in the Congo. Yeah, and uh, I guess just to add to that, and just to emphasize here, I'm speculating and speaking personally, I suppose. But my reading of the situation is that uh, at a political impasse and during political difficulty, that's very expensive in terms of the way in which politics is done in Congo. There's a lot of people to be paid, um, and a lot of patronage uh, networks of patronage to be maintained. So that could explain why we've seen this spike in money that seems to be going missing, and right. suspect deals and secret deals and legislation about publishing contracts not being exer- observed, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think that is that is one issue. Another issue is that uh, the looting that we've seen taking place, as we mentioned right at the top of the, the podcast, means that despite Congo's wealth in co- cobalt and copper, where the prices are going up in both, we're still seeing a, seeing a huge economic kind of meltdown in Congo. And if that continues and worsens, that could be one of the factors that is really critical for Kabila holding on to power. If people really, really start to feel the bite of, a, of an economic malaise that lasts for a seriously long time and starts to worsen, that would be very difficult, I think, for him to ride out. But other than that, which is unfortunately quite a kind of apocalyptic ver- uh, vision, uh, I'm kind of with Tom. I think he's probably going to hold on for, for the foreseeable future. And he seems increasingly diplomatically isolated from, from the West, at least. But it doesn't seem to matter that you see a growing presence of Chinese companies, which are very important in the sector. And, and I'm not sure personally what the Chinese diplomatic position with Kabila is, but it doesn't seem to have been um, particularly publicly strong, at least. Um, so increasingly, it seems that, that diplomatic isolation matters less and less to him and uh, that he and the family may end up holding on to power for some time. Pete Jones, Global Witness, Tom Wilson, Bloomberg. Uh, it's not a very nice, uh, optimistic picture that we've just painted, but probably a relatively realistic one. Thank you both very much. Thanks.